We are at question 93 in our catechism now. We're looking, of course, overall at the means of grace. So as a reminder to you, and one of the reasons I've repeated this several times as we go along here is because sometimes I'll ask people, you know, what are the means of grace? And I'll go, oh, oh, oh I'm not sure. And uh, something you need to know. So I keep repeating in these introductions. Some of you say, well, why do you keep repeating this? It's because some of you don't remember. Some of you don't know. And so uh, let's, let's, uh, let's think about that. You know, what, what are the means of grace? They're, they're tools, instruments that, that God uses to bring the blessings of his salvation to us as his people. And the three primary means of grace are the word, sacraments, and prayer. So he brings his word to us and it tells us that we are sinners and who have fallen under God's curse and wrath. It tells us that we can be forgiven by trusting in Jesus Christ, who was crucified for the sins of his people. We come to the word and we also hear that uh, we, we hear of God and how he works in us so that we can believe and we hear his, his message that comes to us and uh, of salvation through faith in him, what he has done for us, and we believe that word, and it benefits us. We hear how Christ was crucified for our salvation. And then the sacraments in prayer are the other two primary means, and when we believe, we're told that to be baptized along with our children, and then to come and partake of the Lord's Supper, and when we do this in faith, we trust God that he has washed us, that he's cleansed us from our sin, that that's how we're admitted into his presence because through Jesus Christ and our faith in him, we have been washed. Baptism says God washes us. And we look at that. He's given us a new heart that can serve him. And then with the nourishment that we receive uh, from God that is represented in the Lord's Supper. So we naturally respond also to God with prayer, the, the other means of grace, word sacraments and prayer. And pleading for his mercy and salvation when we see our need of Christ. And especially when we come to him, we, we pray and ask the Lord, have mercy on me. Many people are, are converted with that prayer, you know, calling on the name of the Lord. After we have received him, we keep on praying to God for his saving grace to operate powerfully in our lives. And it does, like God answers prayer. It's a means that you can get the living God to bring to you the things that he has promised. That is a wonderful thing to have a means that he's given us for that purpose. In our study of the catechism, we've already studied about the way that God uses the word. And at present, we're looking at how he is, uses the sacraments. So far, we have only looked at the sacraments in a general way. And it won't be until next week that we'll begin to look first at baptism and then a few weeks after that, specifically at the Lord's Supper. So as for this week, we have another general question about the sacraments. And it's really quite a simple question. It's question 93. And uh, maybe I'll, I'll tell you a little funny story. One time when I was, Elizabeth was first learning the catechism, I said, you'll be able to answer this one without even looking at the, uh, at the answers. I said, when you just hear this, you'll, you should be able to answer it. I was introducing it to her, right? And so I said, um, what, are the, uh, what are the sacraments of the Lord's Supper? I made a mistake. And she went, and I said, you know that. And I was thinking that I said, what are the sacraments of, uh, or, or, or what, are, what are the sacraments of the New Testament? But I said, what are the sacraments of the Lord's Supper? And she kept, 
You know, oh, I said, you know that. <laughs> anyway, and then I realized that I had said, what are this? She said, bread and wine? <laughs> I said, no. Um, anyway, uh, so uh, the question is, question 93, what are the sacraments of the New Testament? The sacraments of the New Testament are baptism and the Lord's Supper. So maybe that will help some of you children to remember that. that <laughs> There, this is, a, again, a simple question and a very easy one to, uh, to memorize. But it's not simple to explain. It's challenging because there are great differences in the Christian church about this. The Catechism expresses the understanding of the church at the time of the Reformation. So, you know, some 500 years ago, the Reformed churches, when the Protestant Reformers sought to restore the church in both faith and practice, to the teaching of the apostles in the Holy Scriptures. It was very obvious at the time that the church had drifted away from the original teaching of Jesus that was set forth in Scriptures by the apostles. See, the apostles didn't do anything in establishing worship in the churches except what Jesus had commanded them because he told them not to. That's the principle that God has. But the papacy, which is itself not a biblical form of government, so it's wrong already in that regard, uh, had arisen. And it not only neglected the preaching of the true gospel, sometimes there was no preaching at all, but uh, also instituted all sorts of gross errors. I mean, gross errors, things like praying, paying money in order to get your relatives out of purgatory. Or even worse than that, you could plan that you were going to sin and then get an indulgence so that you could sin, pay money to obtain forgiveness for something that you were planning to do tomorrow. It got that extreme. I mean, these, this, these were gross sins. There were prayers to saints as well, and there were very um, improper reliance on the, the clergy as priests who even though her even thought to offer the sacrifice of Christ for his people, as if Jesus had not done that one time when he went into the eternal tabernacle and offered him his, himself sacrifice. Like the Jews, when Jesus came, the papacy held up church tradition and set aside the commandments of God's word. So that's why this is a, a, a question in our, our catechism, how many sacraments? The Reformers set out to call the whole church back to the Scriptures and to free it from the crippling traditions that had well nigh well choked out the gospel by which we are saved. We don't always like to talk about these sorts of things, but we need to talk about them because just as in the passages that we read in the Scripture, from the passage we read from Kings, we saw how they were speaking against what was being done by by the leaders in the church, setting up these different worship places and things that God had not instituted. One of the things that the reformers especially found need to clean up was the sacraments. Because over the years, tradition had added five additional sacraments to the two that we have in the New Testament. To this day, the Roman Catholic Church still teaches that there are seven sacraments as opposed to the reform teaching that there are only two. We'll look at that more in a few minutes. But in our day, there is also error in the opposite direction. 
there is in many modern evangelical churches a tendency to teach that there are virtually no sacraments at all. They may practice baptism and the Lord's Supper as ordinances in a certain form, but they don't regard them as sacraments. And that deprives people of one of the things that God has given to them. And it's not just that they refuse to call them sacraments. It's not that they have sacraments, but refuse to call them that. That's not the point. That would be fine. But they could call them by whatever name they want. But it's what they do not under, that they do not understand them to be means of grace that actually bring blessing and benefit to God's people when they partake of the sacraments, instruments that God uses to convey grace. Sadly, this error has even found its way into Reformed churches, where although they're still called sacraments in name, they're not looked at in the way that we have understood sacraments to be. So we're going to look at some of these things. So in setting forth the biblical teaching that there are two sacraments that God has appointed for us in the New Testament, we're opposing the Roman Catholic teaching, which teaches that there are seven and many other churches which teach that there are no sacraments at all. So in proceeding to set forth the biblical teaching about this, I'll proceed as follows. First, we will look at the scriptural warrant for saying that only baptism and the Lord's Supper are sacraments. And we'll look at the fact that they are indeed sacraments. (laughs) In other words, that they are sacraments, but also that only they are sacraments. Then we will look at 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4, where we are warned against departing from the simplicity of Christ. And so the ordinances that he has appointed, that's the ordinances we need, not the ones that we come up with, but what he has appointed. So we'll wait until we get to the second part of this message to do our scripture reading. It's only a short scripture reading, but we'll wait until then. So first... Baptism and the Lord's Supper are in a class by themselves. Only they can be called sacraments, as we have defined the word sacraments, as the catechism defines it. The word sacrament can be used in different ways, though. In classical usage, the word sacramentum means anything sacred. It was used to refer to everything from military proceedings to military, I mean, from legal proceedings to military oaths. It was used uh, in, in religion and in the church. The, the word was used for ordinances of sacred significance for things that had a secret or a hidden meaning or sacred meaning or a hidden meaning. It was associated with a Greek word, mysterion, from which we get the word mysteries, referring to secrets or things that have a meaning that has to be revealed. And, of course, that's kind of true of the sacraments, isn't it? Because you don't know what, what is this bread and this cup that we drink at the Lord's Supper. It's just a bread and cup until we say what it is. We have to explain what it is and what we're looking for in it. You can see the connection and where you have a sign like baptism and nobody knows what it means either until they're told. Because the word is used in such a variety of ways, I want to stress again that our quarrel is not with those who use the word in a different way than we might use it. That's not the issue. Our quarrel is with those who give other ordinances, besides baptism and the Lord's Supper, the special status and power that God has appointed to sacraments. Or our quarrel is with those, again, who do not attribute to baptism and the Lord's Supper the special status 
and power or efficacy that God has given to them. So what are the features that give sacraments their unique place? There are four of these features that can be drawn from the definition of the sacrament that we looked at in question 92 last week. Remember the question, what is a sacrament? And the answer is, a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. So the four features are, first, that a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ. This is required for any holy ordinance that is used in the church to be legitimate. Okay, whatever kind of ordinance it is, whether it's a sacrament or another kind of ordinance, to be legitimate in the church, it needs to have been instituted by the Lord. If it is instituted by mere human tradition, it does not belong as, to an, an, as an ordinance in the church. The Lord made it clear from the very beginning that in our worship, we're not to add or to take away from the things that he has appointed for us to do. This rule is given very clearly in many places in Scripture, but we find it in Deuteronomy 12, 32, very clearly stated, after telling them not to worship him as the nations had worshiped their gods, he says, whatever I command you, this is in the context of worship, whatever I command, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it or take away from it. So that's the rule of worship. We saw that when we looked at the second commandment a while back. So we're not authorized to come up with some holy ordinance such as, you know, an Advent wreath, for example, where we light candles and say this candle represents prophecy and this candle in the middle represents Jesus Christ. And we make a sacred ceremony of our own doing that God has not ordained. And uh, we, we use this as an aid to our faith as if we had the power to take these things and say, we're going to get God to use these as a way to bless us, as a means of grace to us. Somebody comes and says, well, it was really helpful for me. It was real, really meaningful. But the thing is, God has not authorized us to come up with our own. And when we do, you can get right out of hand. Things can get confused and gaudy even with all of these different things going on. Sometimes you see things where there's just... It's like, wow, there's all these little symbols and things and curtains and all sorts of different things. And like, wow, I remember the I remember the church that I grew up in. There was a bit of that stuff and there was all these little little carvings and different things. And, you know, I, I think they went over and told us what some of them were one time, but I didn't really remember. I don't know. You know it was just a bunch of a bunch of extra things. And uh, these things can get kind of um, unwieldy sometimes. But. Um, so, so it needs to be something that's instituted by Christ. We're not authorized to come up with a holy ordinance and make it so. It's clear that both baptism and the Lord's Supper, along with many other ordinances that are not sacraments, but are ordinances like prayer and fasting, have been instituted by Christ and were not invented by men. In Matthew 26, 26, we have an account of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper and commanding that it be done, that, that it be done until he returns. And in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we have him commanding that baptism be done as part of making disciples and that that be continued also until the end of the age. So there is no doubt that baptism and the Lord's Supper were instituted by Christ. Wasn't some guy said, hey, I've got an idea. 
What if we put water on people and then we said that God was washing and cleansing them and then we could look to God and say, Lord, wash us and we could do this in the church or whatever. And everybody, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. And then they started doing it. That's how stuff happens. And it's not the way that God has appointed. He, it has to come from him if it's going to be something of sacred significance. See, if we have candles or something like that in a church, nothing wrong with having candles for light. But if you start giving them sacred significance and efficacy that you're building into them, then it becomes part of the worship. It's not just a circumstance of worship. Light is a circumstance of worship. We have to have light to be able to see. We can have light bulbs. We can have candles. We can have different kinds of light, have a skylight, whatever it is. But we need to, when it, when it has sacred significance, it needs to come from God. Okay, so the second feature is that a sacrament must be a sensible sign of spiritual realities. Now, of course, we have things like prayer that's an ordinance of God, but it's not a sacrament. It's not a sensible sign of something. It's something that we come to with our senses. And I remind you that as a sensible sign, we don't mean a reasonable sign, but we mean something with our senses that we engage in with our senses. Um, Smell, taste, touch, seeing, that kind of thing. We saw last time God represents spiritual realities in the sacraments that cannot be seen or heard or touched themselves or tasted or smelled. He uses things that can be tasted or smelled or touched or so on to, uh, to represent those things, to make them more uh, tangible to us, as it were. He is the one who makes the association again, not us. We don't come up with the association. He does. We can use stuff for illustration, but it's not a sacrament that we look to to receive blessing from God. So with baptism, he represents the washing away of our sins by the sprinkling of our bodies with water, which... While the words are spoken according to his institution, telling us that we are baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And with the Lord's Supper, he represents spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. We, can, we cannot discern the, uh, with, with, our, our spirit, with, with our senses, we can't discern spiritual nourishment or even eating. We don't, it's not something spiritual, we can't. So God has given us this physical sign to represent nourishment that we can know that we can look to him to nourish us. He uses what we can see and taste and smell and touch as we hear the words of promise that he says, this is my body given for you. This is the blood of the new covenant shed for the remission of your sins. So, So again, you see that sensible signs are used to represent spiritual realities that cannot themselves be discerned by our five senses. The third feature of a sacrament is that it must be perpetual, something that is to be continued until Christ's return. It's not a temporary ordinance. Jesus had some of those, such as Christ breathing on his apostles and saying, receive the Holy Spirit, or him washing their feet as an example and testimony to them. It's an example that still stands. Some churches have tried to take that and make it a sacrament. I don't think that's warranted. I don't have a great quarrel if someone does that, really. But, but it's, not, it's, it's not really what instituted in that way. Do this until I come. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing like that about it. He says we should serve one another until he comes, that we should wash one another's feet. So there is some reason that people would say that. But he's speaking, the way he's speaking of it is not as an ordinance, but as a, a treating, serving one another. Um, he did not command that they should do these things in his name until he returned. 
I just showed you earlier when we looked at how he instituted baptism in the Lord's Supper, that both of those, he said, to do them until I come. So we don't need to look at those verses again, but we saw that in Matthew. And then the fourth feature that sets the sacrament apart from the other ordinances is that it signifies seals and applies uh, or conveys grace. Um, What this comes down to is that God declares that he will actually do for the sinful soul what is represented by the sacrament, or maybe I should say for the soul what is represented by the sacrament. He is the one, again, who associates these signs with his action. Okay, and with the sacraments in particular, the action that is represented is how what Christ did affects us. We've seen how God uses it in our lives. We've seen that, that it's not where we're depicting Christ being crucified again with the bread and the wine, but we're remembering him as crucified and looking to be blessed and benefited by that, looking for God to bless us and benefit. That's the action that is shown, is the blessing that comes to us from what Christ did 2,000 years ago. And with baptism, it's the same thing. Jesus died on the cross, poured out his Holy Spirit, but then we look to him to bring that blessing to us that is represented in the sacrament. So, No one but God has the authority to associate his gracious actions with the sign. So it's only God that says, I will convey grace through this. So that's one of the main features of a sacrament. So there are the four features of sacrament that make it unique. It must be instituted by Christ. It must use sensible signs to represent Christ and his benefits. It must be perpetual, and it must signify, seal, and apply the benefits of Christ's saving work to other receivers. Our assertion is that only baptism and the Lord's Supper have all four of these characteristics. There are other ordinances that have a few of these features, but only baptism and the Lord's Supper have all four. Because this is so, they deserve a place of their own, and so therefore we categorize them as sacraments. We might have called them something else, but that's what we call them because they stand in a class by themselves from the other ordinances of God. The problem with the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church is that they have five additional sacraments. The Eastern Church sometimes refers to even more than seven, but the papists insist on the number seven. Both of these branches of the church inherited extreme ritualism that grew up over the years and was not found at all in the apostolic church, in the very early church. It gradually grew up in the church over the first 10 centuries or so. As I mentioned before, the Reformation was an effort to return back to what Jesus instituted through the hands of the apostles and gave to us what we find in the New Testament, also believing that the scriptures are sufficient, that we don't have to look beyond the scriptures and say, well, what is the church doing to learn what the church ought to do? It's helpful to look at history and to see how things were done, but to learn what is to be done, it needs to be something that we see going on in the first century and when the apostles recorded in the scriptures. The main problem with the five additional sacraments is not that they choose to call ordinances of the Lord's sacraments having a broader definition of the term, but rather that they attribute to these other ordinances that they have 
powers that God has not attributed to them so as to elevate these other ordinances that they have to the level of a sacrament that God did not elevate to that level. I hope that's clear. We're not just talking about words, but we're talking about taking something that God has given us perhaps or something that they have come up with apart from God and then elevating that so that it is equal to a sacrament as, as we would look at a sacrament. Uh, they attribute to their ordinances powers that God has not attributed to them and put them in an equal level with baptism and Lord's Supper. For example, they take, take, take something like um, confirmation in which sons and daughters who grow up in the church confess their faith when they reach an age that is appropriate for them to do so and then to turn that into a sacrament. Okay, profession of faith becomes a sacrament. But nowhere does Christ refer to it as something of a sacrament. It's a confession of faith. It's a swearing of vows, which is an ordinance of God that he has appointed in his church. But they add to it anointing of the person who is affirming their faith, anointing them with oil to represent the Holy Spirit being given to them when they affirm their faith. Now, it's fine to pray for the Holy Spirit to work in those who profess their faith. And we should do that. But the church has no authority to make a sacrament out of an ordinance that Jesus did not make a sacrament, to make it a sign of spiritual grace. The problem is this oil ritual was not instituted by Christ as an aspect of affirming one's faith and is nowhere found in the New Testament. For this reason, the reformers returned to the simple way of confessing faith by profession with the mouth and uh, yeah, praying for blessing and all of those things, but no added rituals to, to beef it up and get, elevate it to a place it doesn't own. Another example of their man-made additions is found in what the Roman Catholics call extreme unction or last rites. Some of you know of someone dying that wants the priest to come before they die, to come quickly. This is another anointing with oil that's given to a person when they're fatally ill to prepare them for death. Now, ministers certainly ought to go to minister to those who are dying and minister the word of God to them and seek to bring comfort to them and the blessings of God and the hope that they have. But ritualists want to make this visit into a sacrament. And uh, this, is, this is something that, that does not have God's warrant. Uh, the way it came about, I might mention briefly, is that uh, there was a time when, because of a distorted view of baptism, looking at baptism as the time when all of your past sins are washed away, then there were people that started delaying their baptism. Said, so, oh, you want to wait until you're right on the brink of death, and then you get baptized. And uh, there, were, there were some that did that. It wasn't in their very early church, but later on you started to see that happen. There were others that on the opposite side said, well, if they're not baptized and they die, then they would go to hell. And so they wanted to get people baptized as quickly as possible, like right, right when they were born. You know? and, and if they failed to get to them to baptize them, then they felt like that all, everything was lost for that child. So you, you had extremes going in both directions because of distortions. And so what the solution was that they, the traditionalists came up with over the years was, hey, let's just do it at both ends. You know, we'll, we'll have a baptism when they're, when they're born, and then we'll have another one before they die. 
And so they added this kind of a, a ritual baptism at the end. It's, it's not exactly a baptism, but they, with, with anointing that uh, last rites or extreme unction. Now, the scriptural, the uh, sort of a scripture that they would use for it to some extent would be James 5, 14 to 15. It actually says there, if anyone, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, this says nothing about preparing the person for death, but it's rather an ordinance for healing. So it's a little bit of a stretch to turn it into a sacrament that everyone partakes of before they die. There is an anointing with oil here, but it represents the Holy Spirit, as it says, coming to heal the sick, not to prepare them for death. For this reason, the best way to look at this is as a temporary ordinance that was appointed in the time of the apostles in connection with the gift of healing that was active in the church in that time. What do I mean by the gift of healing? Do we not believe that God heals people now? We do. He answers prayer and heals people. But I think this additional aspect of anointing with oil with the assurance that God will heal them when it's done was the, pertains to that time of prophecy where when they healed someone, when those spiritual apostolic gifts were operative, they didn't try to heal people, they healed them. Like what, what would have it been like, for example, if Peter and John, when they went up to the temple and the lame man was there, if they said, rise up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ. And he said, I can't, my legs, I'm crippled. And oh, I guess God didn't answer it this time. No, it wasn't like that. When they had, a, they had prophetic from God, this is someone that is to be healed. And they proclaimed it, and the person was, was healed in the name of Jesus Christ. They didn't try to heal people. They, they healed people when they, they were prophets. And so then to take, you see, something that was active in the, in the early church, that you wouldn't use this unless you, I think, had that kind of revelation. Now, I'm not sure of that, and I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but that's one way to look at it. It's just, it's not a real clear one, I have to say. And some churches do use anointing with oil. For the sick, um, you know, certainly if you are sick and you want to call for the elders, we will come and, and pray with you for healing. But we don't have the insight to know that you're going to be healed. We'll pray that you be healed and ask God to do that. But we don't know what he's going to do. Uh, so, again, I think it's a temporary ordinance probably um, that we look at. Forgiveness of sin is mentioned, but it's in connection with the healing of a sickness. And that's one of the things that I always do if someone is sick. I say, well, now... You know, is God chastening you? Is there something? Because when he's chastening you, it's not like a mysterious thing. You know if you've been in rebellion against God. And if you've been in rebellion against God, living a double life or something like that, and he chastens you, you don't need to guess whether you're being chastened by the Lord. You should assume it to be so and repent of whatever you're doing. And if you repent, God will forgive you. And, you know, you may receive the, the healing at that time. It's, it's admittedly, though, a different passage. And there are various understandings of it. But to make a sacrament out of it, a, a kind of a, another baptism before death, is not warranted from such a text or from the early practice of the church. And I will briefly mention marriage and other of the ritualist church-added uh, sacraments. Uh, once again, marriage is certainly an ordinance of God. And in Scripture, it is said to be a picture of the relationship of Christ and His church. 
but to turn it into a sacrament where God conveys grace to people, we're not told that about marriage. Does God use marriage in our life? Yes. Do we pray that God would sanctify people through their marriage? Of course we do. But we don't make a rich, marriage is not a ritual where we look for God's blessing to come in a way of, we look for his blessing to come, but we don't look for it to come through the ceremony, through an ordinance that is engaged in of bringing the couple together. And you start to get these kind of little ceremonies where you you know, I, I remember I was at a Greek Orthodox church and the, the minister had these little ribbon things and he's, he's r- r- going around the couple three times for the Trinity or something. And, you know, there's all these different things that are, are rituals that are supposed to bring man saying this little ceremony is going to bring some kind of blessing to this couple. The other added sacraments are um, Things like orders, that is the ordination to the ministry, or confession, by which sins are confessed to a priest. Penance, by which satisfaction is made for sins. We should confess our sins when we have sinned, looking to Christ for forgiveness. And we should also confess our sins to one another and ask for prayer when we have sinned. But it's not a sign and symbol. Confession is not a sign and symbol of, of forgiveness. For the Roman Catholic, confession and penance are ordinances out of which arose a lot of excess ceremonies like the rosary, uh, viewing relics to receive grace from God and forgiveness to shorten your time in purgatory, or um, using the indulgences I mentioned before by which satisfaction was made for sins by paying money. There's no end to how far ritualists will go. Once man-made traditions are allowed then there's no end to what is done. So the restraint that God has given to us, knowing what we're like, is do only what I have commanded. Don't add to it and don't take away from it. The question we must always ask is, what is the scriptural warrant for this practice? And again, you know, certain churches may have something here or something there that they have some plausibility for it to argue from scripture, washing of feet, something like that. Okay, you know, we're we're not going to make a big huge deal about that. We can just debate whether we think that's warranted or not, but you see how far these things can go. Well, now let's move on to the opposite error. Many evangelicals today err by taking away the unique place that God has given to baptism and the Lord's Supper. Usually they agree that these are ordinances that are to be observed in the church, though not always. Like with the Salvation Army, they deny even that that, and they have a hard job justifying when Jesus said, do this until I return, that uh, it's not supposed to be done until he returns. But uh, nevertheless, they say, well, it doesn't really matter. It's not really necessary. That sort of thing. I saw a, a, a Christian uh, campus ministry that said uh, that this was something that people used in the past. It was useful in the past, but it was not for us now because we think differently today. Uh, but the majority are content to practice them, but not as sacraments. And that's the more common error that we look at here. Instead of looking at them as signs of Christ and his benefits that are represented, sealed, and applied, they typically look at them as testimonies of the person receiving the sacrament that, uh, that they are trusting in Christ. So it's their personal affirmation or testimony that they are trusting in Christ. With baptism, they are simply testifying that they, that, uh, they have died with Christ and been raised again you know, through their, their conversion, which is part of what we do in baptism, too, I mean, it is a testimony of that, 
but they say very little of the core feature of washing with water that represents spiritual cleansing by Christ and his spirit. John the Baptist saying, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There's a, this is a symbol of washing by the spirit. And most of all, they deny that one should look to baptism for comfort as an outward sign of the spiritual cleansing that God promises to all who trust in Christ. Not that we trust in our baptism, but we trust in God who promises to wash us and signifies and seals it and applies it to us in baptism. So this is a, this is a denial of Acts 2.38, where Peter says, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, the Spirit, the one that washes, you receive the Spirit as you come looking to uh, the Lord for, for conversion. And of the promise associated with baptism in Ezekiel thirty six twenty five, which says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. It's not the water itself that cleanses us, but God who appointed the water cleanses us when we look to him to wash us coming to the baptism. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart out of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And with the supper, they eat the bread and drink the wine in remembrance of what Jesus did for us very well, but say very little about looking for the Lord to spiritually nourish us and strengthen us when we welcome him with faith. So uh, when we come to him with faith. So for them, it is only a memorial, a memorial of his suffering and death, but not a means of grace by which we should expect to be spiritually strengthened. Yes, there is the moral effect of remembering, but not an associated action of God's spirit to nourish us spiritually signified by the eating or the drinking. It's a denial of 1 Corinthians 10, 16, which tells us that we have real communion in the body and blood of Christ. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not what? The communion of the blood of Christ. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? There's an actual partaking of Christ in that sacrament. That's what's being conveyed there in 1 Corinthians 10. That's not understood. It's just, again, a memorial or a testimony that I trust in Christ. We certainly would not want to say that those who deny the sacramental nature of baptism and the Lord's Supper are not saved. Nothing like that. But the thing is that's a problem is that it, it deprives, they deprive themselves of one of the great helps that God has provided for his people, the sacraments not just as memorials, but as a means of grace. It is an error from which they need to repent. You know, there's a question, a simple question about the Lord's Supper that remember my professor Morton Smith gave us. He said, you know, what do we receive when we eat the bread in the Lord's Supper? And he said, the Roman Catholic receives the actual body and blood of Christ. We're not really talking about that particular thing now. It's turned into actual flesh of Christ. The, um, the, the, uh, the memorialists, like the uh, you know, typical evangelical Baptists today, the Reformed Baptists are more with us, but the uh, an evangelical type Baptist, uh, what do they receive when they receive the bread? They receive only the bread, you know, as a memorial. 
And what about the Reformed? What do we receive? We receive the bread in our mouth and Christ in our heart. Okay, in other words, we receive him working in us. That's the idea. So uh, it's an error, and uh, it's important to make use of what God has given to us. So I hope you're able to see that there are two ordinances that are unique among all the ordinances of God, and that alone are worthy to be called sacraments, again, using the word as we have defined it. Now let's turn to 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4 for our scripture reading and see how we're exhorted to stick to Christ and what he has appointed for us. Hear the word of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which we have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. So he's saying that in a sarcastic way. Somebody comes and preaches extra stuff, and you, you may put up with it the way you guys are going. This is not, not what you should be doing. There, we, by the way, we end the reading of God's word there. So here, you're called by God's spirit to be a chaste virgin to Christ. We've, we're familiar with this kind of language from the study of the Song of Solomon. Look at the end of verse 2. Paul speaks of how he wants to present the Corinthians as a chaste virgin that is betrothed to one husband not multiple husbands, not Christ and some priest or some leader in a church somewhere, but just one husband, Christ. Paul had labored to lead them to Christ, and they had professed faith in Christ alone. This is what Paul refers to as their betrothal to Christ, reminding us that as believers, we have also been betrothed to Christ, and we're waiting for the consummation of the marriage when he returns. And you can see that Paul's great concern is with the teachers who named the name of Christ and came among them that had come among the Corinthians, but were preaching another Jesus, as it were. Now, in a certain respect, they were preaching another Jesus, not in a total, absolute way, but they had modified Jesus to be, in a sense, another Jesus. These teachers did not deny that Christ was the Messiah, but they presented Jesus as someone a bit different, as having a different spirit and a different gospel than the one that Paul preached and accepted. These teachers were, as it says in verse 3, seeking to corrupt them from the simplicity that is in Christ. They were, in other words, teaching rituals and requirements and practices that Jesus did not appoint and so drawing the Corinthians to something else, away from their husband. They needed to follow what Christ, their betrothed husband, said, not what someone else said. Whenever you embrace additions to what Christ taught, additional sacraments and rituals, you cease to be a chaste virgin. You become someone who has others that you're receiving from. Instead of following him and what he has appointed for us in the scriptures, you are listening to another husband and following him. You're not following Christ alone, be it a pope or a bishop or one of the Judaizers or Gnostics that arose in the early church. You're polluted from your purity as Christ's virgin. 
you're defiled by other lovers. This is an imagery that is used throughout the Bible of God's people when they turn from God's ordinances to follow other ordinances of worship. It's spiritual adultery. The prophets use this all the time when people are worshiping in ways that God did not institute. My brothers and sisters, it has always been a problem with God's people. We, re, we resent our position as mere creatures. We want God's position. That's what's flawed in us as sinners. Okay, So we want to decide what is to be done instead of God deciding. We are a rebellious bride who does not want to submit to her husband. We say, I think we need this. I think we should add this. I think we should have this. We are born with this rebellion ever since the fall. Paul associates our tendency to depart from following Christ with the fall in verse 3. He says, look, look at what he says, 11.3. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The serpent stirred up this resentment of being a creature and said, do what you want. Do it your way. You can be like God. God can't tell you not to eat from that tree, but only to eat from that tree or those trees. He showed Eve how good the fruit would be and how desirable it was to eat and how good it would be to be independent and be like God he, and how wise that she would be. He laid all that out. Now, you, now that you see is exactly what rituals do, ritualists do, when they add to what Christ has appointed for us in the church. They show us how lovely and how rich in meaning their rituals are. You say, look at this. Isn't this a lovely thing to do? It's beneficial to us as God's people. They show us how it will make us wise and how it will be helpful for us. So what's wrong with these rituals? They're beautiful and they can be sense. People can sense them to be helpful. It is this. Christ didn't institute them. We belong to Christ and we're to follow him, to use his ordinances, not someone else's. He has given us in his word, given them to us in his word without adding to them or taking away from them. He he tells us not to add or take away from them. That's what it means to be a chaste virgin to Christ. I'm not corrupted from the simplicity of what he gave me. There was never a time in the history of God's people when there were not many in the church who were following rituals that God did not appoint. This is a huge point because you, you, you can't find people say, well, but people are so many people are doing this. It must be okay. No, God continually says it's not okay in his word. People are always doing this. And God always says it's not okay. As soon as Israel came out of Egypt, they set up worship after the manner of the Egyptians who used calves as thrones for their gods. Notice, though, they restrained a little bit. They didn't put an image of, the, of God on the, on the calf because they knew that they weren't supposed to have an image of God. So they just had the calf as the throne of God, and then they went to worship in the manner of the Egyptians, dancing around the, the, the throne and all this sort of stuff. Golden calf. And uh, they, they were soundly rebuked by the Lord. They said, but we were all excited and this was meaningful and helpful to us. And God said, I didn't tell you to do that. You don't do that. You don't do what I, but what I've told you to do. Moses carefully instituted them pure worship, warning the people not to add or take away from it. But soon they had added all sorts of rituals and had neglected the ones that God actually did give them. We read about this in 2 Kings 17. We read about it earlier. 
There it says that it is because of such problems that Israel, in Israel that God delivered them into the hands of the Assyrians. Did you notice that when we read that? That was the reason that God delivered them over to the Assyrians. Did you see that? 2 Kings 17, 15. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he had testified against them. They followed idols, became idolaters, and went after the nations who were all around them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. Don't worship the way they worship. And that's exactly what they did. They brought over things, the worship of calling on ancestors or whatever it might be. And when we come to the New Testament, we have Jesus rebuking the Jews for setting aside the commandments of God to do what? Follow their traditions. He told them that they made God's commandments of no effect by their traditions. We see the very same thing arise in the New Testament churches before the apostles are even done with their ministry or while, while they're still alive. Paul himself had gone to Corinth in 50 AD and founded the church there, planted a church there. Second Corinthians was written five years later. And already they were having problems with adding things to the simplicity of Christ. Five years after the apostle had planted the church, and he's having to address this problem. Do you think people have a propensity to add to the simplicity of Christ things that God has not appointed? I believe they do. The scriptures are very clear. Do we see that all around us? We see it all around us. The same sorts of warnings are given to many other churches in the New Testament as well. I saw a documentary, I think it was done by the BBC, about early Christian communities that they, the archaeologists had dug up, looking at some of their worship places. And the uh, commentator, he, he wasn't thinking about it the way I would think about it, but he just noted as he was talking about things, uh, how within one or 200 years that there was a change that was made. In the earlier places that they found, places where the Christians worshipped, then the pulpit was in the center of everything. But as the years passed, the altar became central within a couple of hundred, couple hundred years, one or, one or two hundred years. The ritualists were already on the move. Paul notes that. You see, so there's, it was already having five years after the church was planted in Corinth. Should it therefore surprise us to find all sorts of additional rituals in the fairly early history of the church? even in the second century and certainly by the third. And we said, well, look, lots and lots of people were doing this. They were, but lots and lots of people were worshiping at the high places after Moses had said, don't worship at the high places. They, 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 they do, but they, they didn't. And uh, so it's just as wrong for us as it was for Corinth or Israel. It's part of the defect of the fall that is in us. We're not content to worship God in the way he wants. We want to do our own thing, to add, to embellish, whatever. I don't know if we get bored or exactly what it is. What ought we to do then? We ought to guard ourselves against following those who would lead us away from the simplicity of Christ. We should rejoice in the privilege that we have to belong to him. And we should show, how, we should show him how grateful we are to be his bride and show him our gratitude by carefully following the ordinances that he has given us and not those of a stranger. 
We should shut up our ears to their enticements and we should follow Christ alone. How happy and blessed we'll be if we do. But let me warn you, there's a danger that those who are zealous to keep worship pure will do so with resentment, as if in a, a straitjacket. There's no way to follow our dear husband, Jesus Christ. We should cherish what he has given us, not look at it as if we're somehow restricted or restrained from doing what we want to do. But we should engage fully in what he has given us. You're to follow him as a happy bride, looking to get the full benefit out of the ordinances that he has given us. The word, sacraments, and prayer are beautiful, and they are exactly what we need. He didn't give us superfluous things. He did not deprive us of things that we actually need. If only we would simply stick to what our husband has appointed for us. What good we will find in our dear Savior to whom we are betrothed, and how happy we will be in the great day when we can be presented to him as a chaste virgin, pure and holy, by his grace. Please stand and let's pray. Oh, gracious Father in heaven, how we praise you and thank you that you have revealed to us how you want to be worshipped. We praise you, O Lord Jesus, that you love your people and that you have given them everything that they need in order to draw near to you and to receive your grace and blessing. And we pray that we wouldn't think it would be a good thing for us to come up with a bunch of other ways to receive your grace and to receive blessing from you, but that we would retain the simplicity that you gave to us. And we would know that this is the appropriate thing in new covenant worship. The old covenant worship was not so simple. It had a lot of rituals and washings and special garments and incense burning and all sorts of different things that were given to the people then. But Father, now you want us to see our living Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we come and we are not benefited and blessed from word sacraments and prayer, then we shouldn't suppose that we need to juice things up. But we should recognize that what we need is for you to visit us with your Holy Spirit and the ordinances that you have appointed. And it's so easy for us to substitute something outside of your spirit and to feel that we are being blessed and being drawn near to you when in fact it is just that we're being moved by the ceremonies that we have come up with and, and instituted ourselves. Lord, we want, to, we want it to be dry and barren if your spirit is not among us because we want to be in a position where we will cry out to you until you bring your spirit to bless your people and to edify us. We pray that we would care about being blessed, that we would be different about that, that we would want to be blessed by words, sacraments, and prayer. We would want to be blessed by you. But Father, may we not, in our zeal to be blessed, go looking for some foreign way to be blessed, some extra sacrament or something that we come up with, actual rituals, ordinances, whatever they may be. We thank you that the word of the faithful apostle was that we have been presented to Christ as a chaste virgin and that he is concerned that we not depart from the simplicity of Christ and the worship that he has given us. Oh, Father, our eyes are or toward you, Lord, and we do ask you, Lord, make our worship 
to be a blessing to us, to be edifying to us, that we grow and that we benefit from word, sacraments, and prayer. Father, please, our eyes are toward you. In Jesus' name, amen. Give now the blessing of the Lord our God. Now may the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. May you know that. Amen.